0: Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. In coming to the tail end of this Advent season, you and I are reminded that what we will face in the coming days of the Christmas season is a remembrance of the establishment of an everlasting kingdom, a son of David and son of God in one divine person being born in the city of David, who not only establishes an everlasting kingdom, but a house for the name of the Lord that will never pass away. Today we hear of David sitting in his glorious house with cedar beams last, built to last many, many lifetimes. And if you don't believe me, you know, look at cedar buildings. They're unbelievable. Go try to buy cedar lumber. It's incredibly expensive, but very worthwhile. David is in a period of rest from attack. The enemy is not surrounding him. He can enjoy the peace of his city. He can go for walks and not have to hole up in the caves under the city. He doesn't have to be constantly leading his men into battle. If it is the vocation of a king to defend and make war, we see in David that it is also the vocation of a king to be a man who writes poetry, who pursues beauty, who builds temples, and the kind of high culture that peace affords him. David looks up from his house to Mount Zion and determines in his heart that he will build a proper temple for the presence of the Lord, for the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. This occurs in the days following the events of 2 Samuel 6, where David welcomes the Ark of the Covenant into the city of David. You'll remember that when the ark comes into the city, David dances before the presence of the Lord wearing the priestly ephod. For this, David, David's wife Michal despises him. She is the daughter of Solomon, and she thinks this is not a very kingly thing to do. And she says how the king of Israel honored himself. She's being sarcastic today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his female servants as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David's response is to say this, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But, then he says this strange thing, by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. David's exuberant worship culminates in his determination to build a house for the Lord high above the city of David, high above his own palace. If you ever go there to Jerusalem and and see this, it's really amazing. In recent years, they've done all these excavations over the city of David, and, and you've got to see this. It's amazing. The city of David is south from the Temple Mount, and not only south, but below, several hundred feet lower. And I know this because I've walked from there up through an old excavated Roman sewer, which was great fun, by the way, from the city of David and the Pool of Siloam up to the base of the temple and the Western Wall. This thing that David determines he will do is a natural thing to do. I often look around here, and even as beautiful as this building is, I think it could do with a good many improvements. Many of you are surprised to hear from me that I have plans to make it more beautiful, more stunning, more of a proper temple for God's church. I have often, as a parish priest, had to correct parishioners who are tempted to substitute good enough when it comes to the church's appointments and buildings for good. There is a difference between doing our best and good enough. As modern Americans, it's unthinkable to us to consider spending untold millions to build a stone church with gold everywhere, a pinnacle of our our cultural abilities. But I would challenge that today. We're very, very blessed to have this beautiful building. We couldn't have built it today. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't have if we could have. David determines in his heart that he will build a true temple for the presence of the Lord, that it will not be a quick project, but will take him all of his life and even into his son's life to build it. It will require all of his resources. Scripture even lays out how many resources it took to build it. It will require all that he is, a surrender of himself. And Nathan the prophet hears of this plan and sees nothing wrong with it. Nor, as it turns out, does God himself see anything wrong with it. The Lord sends his word to Nathan the prophet in the night, and he asks, and I'm paraphrasing, God asks, did I ever ask for a permanent house to be built? It's almost like a joke. I can't remember asking for that. Did I ask for it? The Lord has been content to dwell in a tent all of these centuries. And it is, this is incredibly important if we're tracking the story. The presence of the Lord of Israel is mobile. He goes with His covenant people where they go. And He pitches His tent where they are. The God we meet in Holy Scripture is not a God who is tied to a specific city or a specific temple or a specific place. It is therefore seen that the God of Israel is both utterly transcendent and also utterly with his people. He says to David through Nathan, I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And instead of saying, Don't build me a permanent house, don't bother with the expense, it's too much the Lord says this, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And he isn't talking about a brick and mortar house. He's talking about making of David and from his offspring a kingdom which will be established forever. Listen to this in verse 12 of chapter, of chapter 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. He sh- who shall come from your body and I will establish His kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. What is being said here right in the Old Testament is a word which looks forward to and anticipates the coming Messiah who will, and this is literally what's being said, be both a son of David and son to the Lord the Father. The Lord is also foretelling of the establishment of a house built for His name. And we can understand this clearly to be the church. A temple not made with hands, but eternal in the heavens. The body of Jesus It is this very body which we Christians believe was incarnate from the Virgin Mary, born in Bethlehem, the city of David, crucified by the rod of men and raised from the dead. A body which is so joined to the church in a mystical covenant of marriage that the church is truly bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, participating fully in the bodily realities of her Lord. The church is a holy and divine humanity wherein God's Spirit dwells a better and lasting temple. If we fast forward a thousand years from the reign of David, what is going on? We know that the temple has been destroyed and has been rebuilt. But it is no temple. The Ark of the Covenant was hauled off to God only knows where. The line of David has been cast aside. Usurpers, the Herodians, who aren't even real Jews, are on the so-called throne. And they are mere puppets, first of the Greeks and then of the Romans. The tribes of Israel have been dispersed throughout the known world. The tribes to the north have been mostly wiped out, absorbed into, this, into the Assyrians. And in this little tiny town called Nazareth, way out of the way of Jerusalem, way out of the way of even Bethlehem, a young woman, a virgin, is betrothed to a man who is nothing less than the disinherited rightful heir of the Davidic line. She herself is of a strong mix of Aaronic and Davidic blood, and the angel Gabriel himself, the messenger of God, appears to her saying, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. I want you to hear that again. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. By all accounts, the Lord of Israel had been absent for over 600 years. And and Gabriel says, messenger of the Lord, not only that the Lord is with Mary, but that she is favored. And another way of putting this, as often it's been translated, is full of grace. And we know that these words were strange because Mary is troubled by them. She wonders, what kind of greeting was that? And the words of the angel are well known. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call His name Jesus. He will be great, and we've called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, there is a lot going on here, but you can see how this word of God given to David through Nathan is being made very, very real. It's being actualized. This is the claim of the Gospels that Jesus is the Messiah, the living Word of God with us. The God who pitches His tent among us. The promised eternal Son of God. And furthermore, this is not about a renewed King for just the Judaic tribes, but for a renewed Israel and therefore a renewed world. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Forever we know Mary's response. She doesn't say, sounds good to me. She doesn't say, okay, well, how do we do this? She says, how will this be since I am a virgin? Mary is only betrothed to her husband. The day of her marriage might have been many years ahead. But Mary knows that this child will not be just some ordinary kid from Nazareth, another disinherited prince from a royal line long since forgotten. He would be conceived according to the word of God unto Mary, be it unto me according to your word, is what she says. As Gabriel tells her that you will conceive, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High shall what? Overshadow you. This is incredibly temple-esque language. The Spirit of God overshadowing the temple. But let's go quickly through the rest of the story. Mary, like the Ark of the Covenant, spends three months in the Judean hill country before going into the city of David. Mary, like the Ark of the Covenant, is beheld by a dancing priest, a real priest, not just one dressed up like one. John the Baptist leaping in the womb. She is greeted by her kinswoman Elizabeth. Why is it granted me that the mother of my Lord should come to me, just as David greets the Ark? How can the Ark of the Lord come to me? Elizabeth is not ashamed of her son leaping in her womb. She tells Mary about it with great joy, knowing that the fruit of Mary's womb is blessed. You see Mary and Elizabeth I think are those servant those female servants who hold David in honor even as the rest of the nation has completely forgotten even as they are a people filled with shame Mary the star of the sea shines forth in the darkness of a people who have walked in great darkness These daughters of Zion are those who rejoice in the coming of the Lord who are the very first to behold His redemption. These are the very daughters of Zion who remember the oath sworn to David, one of the sons of your body will I set on your throne. This is why the church has always taught that the body of the Lord Jesus Christ is given to Him by His mother Mary. It is not some sort of specially created vessel sort of conceived in a test tube. Mary is the vessel which contains him. She is the Ark of the New Covenant, the first dwelling place of the incarnate Word of God, from whom he gains his human nature. And beloved, in conceiving the body of the Lord in her womb, she also becomes the mother of the church. She conceives by the Holy Spirit who comes upon her, and she is present. Remember, She's present on the day of Pentecost when this gift of the living Word of God is poured out on all flesh on the very steps of that departed temple. The church being made known, this renewed temple by the Holy Spirit. Mary, if I can put it according to the psalm, is the true Mount Zion in which the Lord builds for Himself and for His name an everlasting house. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. They shall not be moved. Or as Psalm 87 puts it, all these were born in her. It is from her that the poor are satisfied with bread, the living bread of the Eucharist. He has filled the hungry, she says, with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. It is from her that the priests of the Lord are clothed with salvation. It is her saints which shout for joy like John the Baptist, because they, like her, have been overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, made the very temple of the Lord indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Mary, this humble young woman, is the very embodiment of created wisdom who receives into her womb the embodiment of uncreated wisdom. She becomes the very first living temple of the presence of the Lord and His Word, and she is not the last. Being the first, she is the mother of all those who like her have been joined to this living temple, not made with hands, but eternal in the heavens and made with flesh. But I want to end this morning by saying one big thing. And that is this. That this is good news. Two years ago, I got to visit the church of the Annunciation in Nazareth, and as it happens, there were a bunch of uh, Spanish young women who were uh, kneeling before the, the grotto there, which is in the church, which is an amazing building. It's, it's probably the only example of Bauhaus brutalism that I can get behind. They were kneeling there, and I, I asked, you know, what's going on here? And, and, uh, and this nun that was with them said, well, they're, they're praying for their vocations to this order, in the very spot where Mary says, be it unto me according to your word. And I looked at the faces of these young women and they were beautiful. I mean, just like the most beautiful faces you could possibly imagine because they were surrendering their wills to God's will. That's good news. To put your trust in Jesus Christ is to surrender to His will, to surrender to His word, and to be made a place where He lives. This is the cause of our rejoicing. God with us. Not God for us, but God with us. God pouring out the fullness of His grace in the fullness of time, who from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace, as John says. This is the message for the Lord's church. His temple as so much is stripped away this year. We rejoice not in large family gatherings, but simply to be called the children of God. Born not of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We rejoice not in long-awaited gifts, but in the gift which every Christian already has. The indwelling, powerful, overshadowing the Holy Spirit. We rejoice like John the Baptist and Elizabeth, not in shame and not ashamed, but as the Lord's body and bride, His glorious church, held in such resplendent honor as she signs bright- brightly with the presence of the living God in her midst." We rejoice in the obedience of faith made known to the prophets and made known to all nations. The obedience which is so wonderfully summed up in the words of Mary, be it done to me according to your word. And this is why the church will always inhabit until the end of time, beautiful, beautiful buildings. Why? Because she herself is beautiful. Beloved, let us rejoice in the word of the Lord, that the Lord Jesus Christ has joined His church to Himself as His bride and made her a dwelling place for Himself. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.